Luno, the fastest, easiest way to buy Bitcoin. If you're just getting into crypto, it's the perfect place to start. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Leia Heilpern show. I'm super excited for today. It's going to be really interesting. Um, I am live in Miami, which is super exciting. Um, so this is actually powered by the VC firm Icon Plus Capital. Um, it is sponsored by BlockFi. They give amazing interest rates. So definitely check them out. I've left a link um, everywhere for you. Um, I think you can get up to like, I think it's, I don't know, 4% interest or something like that, which is much better, especially across Europe because you're getting negative interest rates there. Um, also, guys, don't forget because this month um, up until October, so I'm giving away a free version of my audiobook if you do have the paperback on dressing Bitcoin. So if you have the paperback, then just let me know and I'm giving away a free version of my audiobook. All right, guys. So today, let's kick this off. Joining me is the founder of Insanely Addictive Fitness and previously the director of Business business development at OKCoin. It is Alex Feinberg. Alex, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to meet you. Whereabouts are you right now? I'm in Austin, Texas. I had to uh, to move to one of the two free states in the US. And so Texas was one of them. And uh, Oh, where were you moved. before? Well, you know, I, I spent about 10 years in Silicon Valley. Um, oh, wow. And, you know, maybe just as a, a background for me and, and your audience, um, you know, after I finished uh, playing professional baseball, well, maybe as a, as a start, you know, I, want, I pursued freedom my entire life. And I, as a young kid, I thought that uh, athletics would be a vehicle for me to achieve that. And so I, um, I worked very hard in high school to get a college baseball scholarship, played at Vanderbilt University, got drafted by the Colorado Rockies, played two years in their uh, organization before kind of realizing that uh, my career was coming to the end of the road ended up connecting with um, one of the boosters for my college uh, baseball team who gave a quarter million dollars to the university about 10 years ago uh, to sponsor a trip to Asia for the baseball team. And, um, you know, he and I got to chatting. I had no idea he ran a hedge fund at the time, um, but a lot of people were encouraging me to get into finance uh, because of my background in sports and my economics major. And uh, I knew he was a weird dude. But um, you know, he, was, he believed in conspiracy theories. He flew me around on a private jet when I was 23 years old telling me about uh, you know, uh, corruption in the US government. He gave up his citizenship in the early 90s. Um, and he really hated the Federal Reserve. And you know, this was before it was popular to hate the Federal Reserve. He really, yeah. really hated the Federal Reserve. Like I remember we went to, uh, to Las Vegas and uh, we were playing blackjack and he's playing, you know, he won like $15,000 in an hour and we go up to his uh hotel room and he's just complain, just bitching about the federal reserve okay. and at the time you know this is before i had like read the creature of jekyll island even though as a uh, uh, economics major i didn't really understand the financial system that well um but you know after he asked me if i wanted to work for him i took the conspiracy theories that he believed in seriously because he was worth a hundred million dollars and i wasn't and one of the conspiracy theories that he believed that I believe because I read the Federal Reserve Act was that the Federal Reserve uh, was and is a private corporation. Yeah. And so, um, you know, working at his hedge fund in Hong Kong for a year and a half in 2010 to 2011 um, sort of made me believe, OK, this game is rigged and the manner in which it's rigged is going to dump liquidity uh, into speculative markets of which Silicon Valley is probably the most speculative market at the time and still now. And so if I want to position myself um, to make the most money I can without working you know, harder than everybody else, uh, I need to find a way to get back to Silicon Valley where I actually grew up. 
And so I moved back to Silicon Valley in 2011, um, figured out a way, elevator pitched, frankly, my way into Google, um, you know, using a lot of the you know, psych psychological frameworks that I learned as a competitive athlete, like understanding uh, different heuristic models that people use to, uh, to make decisions. I basically um, use those to my advantage. I currently coach other people to use those to their advantage if they want. Um, elevator pitched my way into Google, uh, ended up taking a sales role, worked there for about six years um, prior to uh, then taking the uh, director of business development position at OKCoin shortly after the crypto market started rallying in 2017. And so I lived in San Francisco for about 10 years and then got the F out of there March 14, yeah. 2020, when it looked like Black Friday in the stores. And I was like, uh, what is this COVID thing? I do not want to be in an urban area. Um, so I spent last year in Idaho when my mom moved for several months and then decided at 34 years old, I don't want to live with my mom, actually. I'm sure. um, and so Austin, Texas ended up being the spot uh, that I moved to uh, because with my current business, I thought it would be uh, the most advantageous to just interact with people who um, want to eat delicious food and get jacked <laughs> and uh, do it more simply than, uh, than they think they have to. That is a crazy story. I didn't know you were at Google, so I'll go into all of that in a bit. But um, I'm really interested to hear these conspiracy theories, which yeah. he was telling you. So other than the Federal Reserve, what other conspiracies was he telling you? And wait, well, how did you meet this guy? I must have missed that. Yeah, so he gave, uh, he was a fan of my of my college baseball team. And we always knew right. he was a, a weird guy because just you communicate with him. He's like, this guy's a little bit off. But, like, but what's weird? What's weird? Like, just is it because he's into conspiracies or is he just no? Well, I didn't know. I didn't know that at the time. I, I first knew he was weird before I knew he was into conspiracy theories. I first knew he was a rich, weird guy. Okay. Um, and and but I only talked to him a couple times. And then the fall of 20, 2009, sorry, uh, winter 2009 was my last, shortly after my last year of professional baseball. I uh, began to chatting with this guy because I knew he had businesses in Hong Kong and he was rich and I was interested in foreign currency trading. And I right. knew his, his son friended me on Facebook and I pinged his son and said, hey, I'm interested in uh, FX trading. Does your dad know anybody who might be able, you know, who, who might be interested in chatting with me? Turns out his dad trades FX. So it's like, okay, great. Yeah. I, I was hoping to use your dad for an introduction, but maybe you can just re you know, like reconnect me with your dad. Um, and so, you know, he believes in a lot of them. Um, and I, I wouldn't say that I'm, I've been sold on all of the conspiracy theories that, uh, that he believes, but, yeah. um, you know, he obviously the, the fed being a private bank, uh, he thinks it's controlled by the Rothschild family, which, you know, if looking at the research at the time, it's, it's plausible that it was, uh, it's you know, from the research I did really, really tough to definitively say that that's the case now, but I think he probably believes that it's the case now. Um, you know, JFK, a lot of people, you know, will think that there's something yeah. going on with the CIA and maybe the Fed and all that. Well, that's where the word conspiracy theory came from anyway, isn't right, it? Right, right, with, uh, with with how the, the CIA, you know, basically made it up to disparage people who challenged them. Um, he thinks 9-11 is an inside job. 
Um, oh wow okay so he, yeah. he's full-on uh, tinfoil hat and everything yeah um you know belief on global warming i don't think he believes in global warming or i, I don't know okay. what his actual it's climate change now by the way i don't know what his actual beliefs are he definitely doesn't have the mainstream view of climate change but i don't right. know if he thinks it's it's directionally happening just not to the extent the models uh will definitively say it is um, but he thinks very much for himself. And, you okay. know, I think what's important for a lot of people at every stage of their life is uh, a lot of the best advice that you get is going to be uncomfortable advice because it's actually challenging an assumption that you have that is wrong. And it's very uncomfortable for people to remove wrong assumptions because it makes the world seem scarier than it really is. But, oh, yeah. uh, you know, as a young money motivated man, uh, I knew he had a hundred million dollars and I didn't. And so it was like, dude, you're like, this guy has accomplished more than you uh, in all likelihood because he thinks differently than you. So you should at least do your best to evaluate what he's saying and make your own decision on it. Do not dismiss it just because it makes you feel uncomfortable. And so, you know, this guy, he, he's up $200 million on his Bitcoin trade from last year. He would just, he sent me his, his you know, he, he, I think he probably put at the time, maybe half of his net worth, um, and, Smart man. Uh, and, you know, sold a quarter of it just to cover his initial, uh, initial bet. And so with the 75% profit, uh, of his initial trade, he's up like a lot. And so, um, you know, you always look at the scoreboard to determine whether people's ideas, uh, insane ideas are actually insane. And if the scoreboard says they're not sane, then it's actually, well, no, they're geniuses. Actually, they just see things differently than you. And the reason why they're rich and you're not is because they can connect dots that you can't or refuse to. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's where a lot of people tend to go wrong um, in society. They often look at major successful people and, and hear what they have to say and then just shut them down and say, no, they're dumb, you know, rather than saying, right. hang on, what could I potentially learn from this? Um, so that's great. That's a that's a real turning point for you in your life. Um, yeah, go on. Sorry. Oh, I think so. And I think, yeah. you know, a lot of people, you know, when, when we chat, they're like, oh, you know, you played professional baseball and then you worked at a hedge fund and then you worked at Google. How, you know, how did you do all of that? And the reality is um, each group is a social unit. It's just people. And, and so with, within every context, it's competitive humans working in a group to try to win things. Yes. And so once you realize that the way, you know, the commonalities between competitive groups of humans trying to win things, um, exceeds any differences that they have. So the the uh, the event in which they're competing actually matters less than the fact that this is a group competition um, that humans are participating in. Uh, and if you understand the human dynamics, you understand the human psychology that underpins it all, you can actually fluidly jump from industry to industry um, without actually have the, having the industry expertise of people who've worked in it for like five or six years. And so, you know, had I not um, played baseball at a high level, I would not have forced myself to uh, reassess the world that I lived in and thought I understood um, because I wouldn't have seen people who I had previously designated as less intelligent than me continue to succeed in ways that I couldn't. And so I yeah. think forcing myself to humble myself enough to uh, reframe and redefine uh, what I believed intelligence to be which I had to do as a competitive athlete, uh, really made it easy for me to open my mind to new ideas like Federal Reserve conspiracy theories in 2010 
um, or really opened my eyes to new ideas like understanding how corporate America works uh, when I started working at Google. Um, and then I think because I took an open mind to it, I was able to uh, identify different uh, paths that other people could not identify. Uh, I was, you know, able to um, create the fitness and eating programs that, I've, that I now monetize um, in my spare time. And, and it's simply from keeping an open mind and knowing that, you know, there's probably a better way to, to do it than what everybody else assumes. They're just kind of too lazy and stubborn to uh, to go through the cognitive discomfort of continually questioning and reassessing their assumptions. That cognitive discomfort is um, exactly just what reminds me of the matrix and mm -hmm. everything that's going on in the world right now. And this, I titled this show Bitcoin and Tyranny. Um, so I kind of want to talk about, oh, there's so much we can talk about, but let, let's go into why Bitcoin and why crypto for you. Cause you know, you obviously yeah. have this sports background, then a financial background, but why Bitcoin? Why do you care about it? Where does that Bitcoin and fitness come in? Yeah. So I think I've always been an independent minded person. I think since I played baseball uh, in college, um, I came to view the world as, um, you know, people control other people. And so, you know, despite the fact that I'm very anti-Marxist and I, yeah. you know, I see communism rising in the United States and I don't like it, it makes me very uncomfortable. Um, I could actually probably generate uh, more positive statements towards Marxism and communism um, than 95% of, of Americans, despite the fact that I hate it more than 98% of Americans or 99% of Americans. Because So wait, what, what positive things would you say? The, the general diagnosis of, uh, you know, of economic and resource distribution of Marxism is true. The thing that's wrong is the, is the conclusion of, okay, now what do we do? Like in a capitalist society, you will have capital aggregating in the hands of a small, small number of people. And these people will create rules um, to make it more challenging for the smaller people to accumulate capital and essentially uh, maintain decent standards of living. That's correct. What's okay. incorrect is, okay, now the workers of the world need to rise up and take over the, the industries that were exploiting them and, uh, and everything will be jolly. It's like, no, I think history's proven that that's not going to happen in that way. And a lot of people are going to die and end up in gulags. But I, I very much believed the, um, the game of exploitation was there. And, you know, I saw it working in corporate America um, where, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, employees would believe certain narratives and you just look at the math and you're like, that's not true. What they're telling you is not true. You can look at the earnings statement and know that that's not true. Um, or, you know, do you know how little equity you have in the, in the startup that you're working in? Have you asked them how many shares are outstanding? Oh, no, you haven't. Okay. So your stake is one over infinity. You should assume it's zero. Um, and so just seeing people be exploited um, in commercial environments um, and in sports environments, uh, you know, frankly, at, at certain junctures in my, uh, my baseball journey, um, you know, really made me put a high price on my own personal sovereignty. Um, yeah. and I, and I understood that in a capitalist system, you know, uh, owning assets gives you freedom. It's a very direct path to freedom. And if you can't own the assets, at least you need to own the, uh, the source of income that you're reliant upon, because if you don't, they're going to make your life increasingly difficult quarter after quarter by placing higher and higher expectations for the same, you know, roughly the same wage. And so I very much didn't want to do that. Um, I also, uh, understood for many years 
that nothing backs the U.S. dollar other than, you know, our propensity to fight wars to uh, make sure that it's used as an international settlement currency. And so, you know, despite the fact that I was in Coinbase's office in December 2013, meeting with their director of business development, I think shortly after they raised money at like $125 million valuation, um, I actually thought the government was going to make Bitcoin illegal because of what I had. Yeah, I mean, I had studied... Uh, you know, different conspiracy theories around, uh, you know, what we did with uh, Gaddafi, like the real reason why we took out Gaddafi, the real reason why we took out Saddam. And I don't know if it's a singular reason, but I do think the fact that they're trying to create currencies to circumvent uh, the dollar as a settlement currency certainly um, added to uh, why they were on the bad boy list. And uh, and so I thought, well, yeah, like there's no way the government is going to let this thing take off. Um, so I never, you know, despite the fact that I was getting bullying delivered to my office in 2011, 2012 at Google, literally, I, I was getting like thousands of dollars of bullying delivered. And there was this Coinbase company down the street that was hiring, you know, BD reps. And I was like, yeah, but that's not going to do anything. Um, in 2017, <clears throat> when Bitcoin started taking off and it started getting a little bit of institutional backing, I think Goldman was opening a <clears throat> planning to open a crypto trading desk. At that point, I thought, okay, well, the people who own our government seem to be financially incentivized to profit off of crypto. So if those people um, have the regulatory connections that the industry at large generally lacks, you know, I think this thing can take off. And, and the fact that there is nothing backing the dollar tells me that, you know, frankly, any currency can be used as a currency so long as people believe in its validity and it has some degree of functionality, fungibility, you know, some of the main characteristics of a currency. Um, and I thought, well, there's no reason why, why Bitcoin can't potentially be that um, if I'm, I think it was 31 years old at the time when I left Google and, and uh, entered the crypto space. And I thought, you know, the, uh, this industry is growing very fast. There's gonna be so many opportunities here, even if I can't pinpoint one in particular. You know, I left Google before I had uh, my job offer lined up because I was so certain that uh, something good was would happen, you know. So I made, I made over two hundred thousand dollars my last year at Google. I had worked there for six years, and I just quit without another offer lined up because I was confident enough um, in my ability to sink in a, a ever changing environment and find my way and find my path. You know, these ideas and these views are really uncommon. Um, I think that's why a lot of people tend to um, just gravitate towards Twitter and meet a lot of like minded people. So. Mm -hmm. At Google, Google is is known as, you know, like the big tech lefty kind of way of doing things. So I wonder what was it like having these having these views and then also trying to navigate a world where you're, you're trying to find like minded people who also see the world the same way as you and also don't think you're crazy or a conspiracy theorist. Like, how, how has that been? Yeah. So I, I noticed uh, when I was in college. You know, yeah. I was an economics major, took marketing classes, investment classes. I noticed that people who uh, wore suits well um, and were good looking were always seen as more credible. And so because okay. I, and I didn't realize this when I was younger, but when I, when I was younger, I would say I struggled with credibility and not because of the things I said weren't true in retrospect. In retrospect, it was because I thought in ways that nobody else could understand. And, and the things that I would think and say uh, were a very significant departure of the of the starting assumptions that the people I would speak with had. And so they just assumed I was like making things up. And so I noticed when I was in college, like, oh, well, 
people who look good in suits who speak well seem to be more believable. Like I, we have these people come into our classes and like literally they could say anything. And I would think that it was true. I, I knew this. Yeah. I had the self-awareness. And so a big reason why I stuck with my diet and my fitness regimen my entire corporate career was because I knew that if I was going to have ideas that a lot of people thought were crazy, um, it mm -hmm. was my duty to be in very good shape and and be able to look yeah. good in a suit. Because all of a sudden, you know, if you if you think the same way as a guy who wears a tinfoil hat, but you can wear a custom tailored suit with nice cufflinks and speak, you know, articulate English, all of a sudden your crazy idea seems like, oh, that's interesting. I don't I don't really necessarily know what Alex is saying, but he's thought it through deeply. And so that's kind of the relationship that I had with my colleagues at Google, where um, the company you know, did change very much in the six years that I was there. Um, very similar to how uh, you know, social systems change. Social systems tend to start libertarian and, and devolve into liberalism. Um, yeah. You can look at California. California only elected Republican governors for like its first 70 years, like almost exclusively. You can go on Wikipedia and look at it, you know, who uh, represented it or who was in uh, San Francisco, uh, who San Francisco mayors were for the first half of the 20th century, almost all Republicans. And then as, uh, as their model grew to be functional and larger and more people came in and they started offering more social benefits and that types to attract a different type of person and the way companies work, whether it's Uber, or whether it's Google companies work the exact same way. The core founding team tends to be aggressive libertarians. And as they scale, yeah. they need to start recruiting people from um, liberal universities who, who think differently and, and tend to be attracted to a stable paycheck, which it will be a very different type of person than the person who wants to build something on their own. And so when I joined Google in 2011, it was still a libertarian leaning company. But by the time I had left, uh, it did seem like it had you know very meaningful uh, Marxist inclinations. But I will say that with all the lessons that I learned in my life, um, playing sports, dealing with the media, um, you know, working in finance, learning how to say uncomfortable things in a digestible way kept mm. me sane. Because when like, yeah, I don't know if you remember when Google fired James Damore for writing the diversity memo that he wrote. Um, you know, that memo is based on the, the videos of Jordan Peterson that I'd been consuming like 20 hours a week all <laughs> 2017. And so I yeah. knew exactly what the guy was saying at the time, um, but nobody else did. And so when we had our like team powwow to discuss everybody's feelings after that, uh, that memo started going uh, viral within the company, uh, I was the only person of 15 or 20 on my team to raise my hand and say, I think that what he said was true. And my team was 50% women. And I had one-on-one -on -one discussions with the majority of them. And it wasn't threatening. I wasn't like badgering them. I was just saying like, yeah, like this guy is like one of the smartest people I've ever heard speak. And I really like, there's many reasons that I believe that this is true. And like, I looked into a lot of the data and a lot of the, and I could like articulate the actual studies, you know? Um, when you talk about trait neuroticism between men and women, it's like you can just go look at the study. I remember one of the researchers named Costa. The study includes over 20,000 people, and it talks about the, the mean differences in, um, in trait neuroticism, propensity to negative emotions between men and women. And it's like the study says that there's maybe a quarter standard deviation difference between the two cohorts across countries, and there's only four countries in the world where it didn't exist, and those countries are not exactly seen as the bastions of um, women's rights. So, you know, what's your take on this? And they had no response, obviously. And, yeah. and they couldn't get mad at me because they knew I wasn't coming at them 
um, in an aggressive way. I was just like, look, we're neither of us know 100.0% of what's out there, but this is what I've seen. And the best way that I can interpret this is this way. What do you think? And it was always okay. It was always okay for me to say um, what I believed because of the way that I said it. Yeah, I think that's something that Jordan Peterson does really well. Um, you know, he wears the suit, he um, speaks incredibly well, he makes um, small, like, sorry, complicated ideas, he makes them very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, but my only thing with him is, I- I'm a huge fan, like I absolutely love him, but he doesn't fully get the pass, you know, like you were saying, you know, if you look nice and you look, mm-hmm. uh, you're not, you're not, you don't look like a crazy person with a tinfoil hat, people still don't understand him people still don't understand his ideas um like did you see have you seen the famous kathy newman interview of course i've seen the kathy well yeah. kathy newman intentionally didn't understand his ideas that was, that was a little bit different i think kathy newman was smart enough to understand what he was saying and i don't enough. think she was otherwise shouldn't have put herself in a situation where she just got so embarrassed and she's now a meme oh interesting i, I assume that she knew she was like totally full shit but oh absolutely uh, not Oh, no way. Interesting. Well, you know, and, and this speaks very much to the arrogance of the institutional class, which I think yes. would be uh, a very uh, interesting topic uh, of discussion because it, it very much overlaps into uh, corporate work and crypto is, you know, I, I grew up as an athlete. So even though I went to, uh, you know, top 20 university in the United States, yeah. um, I didn't you know, I didn't consider myself an academic. I didn't consider myself an intellectual. It wasn't until I got out of school, I took a GMAT, realized I scored higher than other people who would get admitted to top business schools um, that I thought, oh, you know, maybe I am like smart. And then I started working with people who went to Ivy League schools and I started to understand the way that they thought and, and the way that they thought incorrectly. And then you started to see some sort of commonality um, between their, the incorrect thoughts that they had, um, and the incorrect thoughts that permeated through corporate America, whether they started from McKinsey and company or started from some internal think tank at a, at a tech company, you start realizing that there are common, uh, ways that these people misunderstand reality. Um, and they're, they're both ignorant and arrogant, um, Mm. with respect to, uh, to, to this reality. And so Kathy Newman, there, I guess, you know, from what you're saying, it is very possible that, um, you know, that she had no idea because these people oh, yeah. don't know that there yeah. are very, very meaningful counter arguments to what they're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're on mute. I don't know. Yeah, I know. Meant to be on mute. I okay, I, I don't know if you meant to be on mute. Stuff going on in the background. Yeah. Oh no, no, I can't hear anything. Okay. Um. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I. I. There's definitely a huge level of arrogance. Um. But no. I look. I like. I. Th- I think you're right. I think. Um. One of the biggest problems, especially during the Trump era, was. Um. A lot of Trump fans or whatever had a really difficult time because the media would constantly pick. Um. People who didn't come across as well educated Mm -hmm. they didn't look very intelligent and so they were really able to sort of portray um you know the trump fans or whatever as these crazy hillbilly type um uneducated people and obviously that's not entirely the case if you know the majority of america voted for him um well i don't i don't think to be clear a majority of america did not vote for him he's he's well he still lost the uh no i meant previously 
No, no, no. He still lost in 2016. The, the, yes, the but majority you know what I mean in terms of just like how it, how it works. Right. That's how propaganda He was elected works. as president. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That, that's how propaganda works is you, you take a small subsection of your opponent and, and you know, in a large country, 340 million people, every group has idiots. And you just say, yep. well, they're all these people. And what's so funny is, you know, I disagree with my dad on a lot of these things because I, uh, you know, he's probably more communist sympathizing. And I would say I'm more center right at this point or center. I don't know, some combination okay. of center right, center left. Um, and, uh, and, you know, he said, oh, you know, have you seen these Trump rallies? Have you seen this? Have you seen that? I'm like, dad, have you looked at the data? Because all of the things that you're saying about or conservatives that they're, uh, you know, neurotic, um, jealous, um, you know, all, all of the, th or, you know, like, um, all of the negative stigma that the mainstream media paints conservatives, if you just Google, um, you know, political differences in, in mental disorders, and you just like, look at the first few articles that come up, this is Google 2021. I don't know how they're going to change the okay. results in 22 or 23. What comes up? It shows that the same things that they say are exist in the Republican Party are actually statistically more prevalent in the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. That there's a greater degree of mental illness. Uh, and I think greater degrees of, uh, of you know, jealousy, envy, all this stuff uh, that that exists on the left than the right. So it's like, you, you know, you're you're it's a pot calling the kettle black. Like that's your group that you're saying. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think for me personally, I just find that there's so much division right now. And um, I feel like it's only getting worse. And, mm -hmm. you know, I always say they with my, my vague they, they will continue to make this division even yeah. more intense, um, you know, sure. with vaccinations and things like that. Um, but I often look at crypto and Bitcoin as something which hopefully can bring us together, although there's still further division. So mm -hmm. when you you, you were saying, you know, you, you decided to leave this secure job at Google um, mm -hmm. to go into crypto or just to go and do whatever else you wanted to do. So that takes a lot of conviction. So can you tell me, you know, where that conviction comes from um, and really just like where where you see Bitcoin's place in the world, given everything we've spoken about in terms of, you know, politics and tyranny? Yeah, so I think... Um you know, you, in retrospect, you could say it took a lot of conviction. It, it also just aligned with some frustrations that I had uh, in, yeah. in a regular corporate job. And I had been looking for years for, uh, you know, I would say faster moving opportunities. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, I was in the Coinbase office in 2013, which I'd only been at Google for like two or three years at that point, two, two full years at that point. Um, but it took me six years to leave because I was very picky about uh, the different bets I would take. I knew that a lot of people who left for startup roles got worse jobs than they left at Google. I had to work harder for less money and very limited up equity upside. And I wasn't interested in doing that. And so when I saw this big wave uh, and everything rallying in the altcoin market in, in late 2017, um, yeah, I mean, I thought it was overbought. I didn't think it would crash by 90%, but I thought it crashed by 50% or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, and so to me, it was just like, there are a ton of smart people in this space. Uh, there's a ton of capital in this space. If you yep. give, if you combine those two things, a lot of good things happen. So this is a very non-academic assessment. Like I wouldn't be able to write this assessment in the McKinsey report. Um, and uh, you know, if I worked at McKinsey and have my boss say that's okay, it's like you only need to know two things. There's a lot of smart people and there's a lot of money. 
And so generally speaking, when those two things intersect, a lot of good things happen. It doesn't, you don't need to create mathematical models around it. You don't need to do case studies around it. You don't need to do typical consulting work or typical analytical work that would be expected of you in a corporate job. You just know that something good's gonna happen. And so that was sort of the extent of the thought process that I've had. And frankly, with the best decisions I've made in my life, uh, they've been made with, um, uh, I guess, very simplistic motivations like to that extent. And, and if I think about the, you know, the few best decisions I've made in my life, none of them have taken more thought process than that, despite the fact that a lot of the other things I do in my life um, do take a lot of thought process. And we were speaking earlier, and you mentioned that there was certain kind of propaganda going on at Google. I'd love to understand more about this. Yeah, so I actually write about this um, in my cheat codes for surviving corporate America. Um, you know, for those of you who who just started following me on Twitter, maybe you've just coming across me today. Um, I initially got my start um, on the fitness side, which I'm sure Leanna will get to later. Um, well, I can cover it now. Entering yeah, go the for it. Go entering for the crypto space in a sales role. Um, with a very small Twitter account in 2018, I told myself, because industries are constantly changing, I told myself that if I don't have 10,000 followers on my Twitter account um, within two or three years, I will not be employable in this capacity in the crypto space because I think anybody who's paying me at that level will expect that I have some degree of distribution uh, greater than just my Rolodex. So I'm going to need to build a crypto account. And um, you know what I had realized from my... Uh, uh, hobbies, which included lifting weights and eating delicious food over the prior five years, is I noticed that I was able to, mm -hmm. to get results that were a lot easier um, than what most people got with mainstream fitness. I never counted calories. I never went through a, a you know calorie cut. I didn't, I was training less and less and eating more and more enjoyable food. And I thought, oh, there's over a hundred million Americans who are diabetic or pre-diabetic or obese. So if they knew it could be as easy as I've found out it could be, um, this is probably one of the best ways I can impact the world. So I'm going to create a crypto or a Twitter account around this content specifically. And then once I can get to grow it to five or 10,000 people, then I can start talking about more crypto stuff because at the time I didn't really have a very unique um, perspective on crypto. And so um, that was sort of how, how my Twitter account um, came up. And I forget exactly why I mentioned that, but specific to your question on um, yeah, on propaganda at Google, yeah. um, I'm I, I'm constantly playing cognitive games within my own mind to reframe issues objectively because what I've noticed uh, as an adolescent and and young adult, and now getting into middle aged adult, is that anytime somebody's trying to spin something on you. Um, they will take something that's mathematically one way and they will present it as if it's not like that. And so a lot of times uh, the way institutionalists will do it is by pretending that the ideas that they have that are subjective are objective. In a way that a large company can do that is they say, well, the promotional process works like this. It's like, okay, that's a negotiation, right? That's not, that, that is your side coming to the table and say, this is how, we're, this is the rate uh, that we're willing to raise your uh, raise your salary at, um, and and we are not willing to raise it uh, in in excess of X um, uh, across Y period of time. So I view this as a negotiation. I don't view this as a rule, as something objective. Yeah. It's like no, this is what they cr they came up with yeah. to maximize their own profits, and I disagree yeah. with it. Whereas a lot of uh, very nice, kind corporate employees, uh, friendly colleagues of mine 
like literally could not see outside the box that the compensation structure and the promotional structure uh, was designed to maximize the extraction of value on behalf of the shareholders of you. And, and you are being set up. And, and this is the case of employees at every publicly traded company is you are a major uh, line item that the CFO needs to account for, needs to figure out how to not let that line item grow dramatically. And so that's why they hire HR teams to uh, then hire compensation consultants to figure out what is the easiest way they can uh, not pay you more for as long as possible without having you leave. And yeah. so like, if all you do is see things, okay, what is this person's job? Why does the, the SVP of HR report to the CFO and not the chief revenue officer? Oh, because they're responsible for costs, not production or more costs than production. Okay. So if they're responsible for managing costs and they create these rules, what do you think these rules are for? Um, and so just, just understanding the world quantitatively and mathematically um, is, I would say, a necessary precondition to seeing the world objectively um, because you can keep track of things and you can keep score. And so when you know that, uh, you know, the score, the scoreboard continually favors one side over the other, you know, then it's very possible that the people who are constructing the rules of the game did it in a way to affect that outcome. Um, and that's kind of like how corporate propaganda works. And so you said, so when we were speaking, you, you, you were saying that you're seeing these similarities um, with the Biden administration. So explain yeah. that to me. So when I see Jen Paskey, if I'm saying her last name speak, uh, she, to me, speaks exactly, uh, exactly her mannerisms, um, yeah. her tone, her cadence, exactly like a full of shit consultant. I don't know what her background is. I assume she worked at McKinsey or something like that. Remind, she, wait, wait, who are you talking about again? The White House press secretary. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what her background is, but she communicates. Her communication style is exactly the same. Well, I, it yeah. probably works for a lot of people. Like that's a fairly elevated position. And I'm sure it was very competitive that a lot of sociopaths were gunning for. Um, and, you know, of all of the people they could have picked, they picked her. So she probably does bring something to the table that a majority of people cannot. Um, but what that means is she's able to communicate in a way that a lot of people probably like her. You know, I get these push notifications because Apple signed me up for them for like Huffington Post. And so I'm what? like, what? Oh, you need to delete you? that rubbish. Yeah, I do. I do. But um, I, oh, wait, I look okay. at them. Just, I just like, want to say, actually, just on that point, though, I used to have no, I used to have uh, news notifications. I turned them off. I deleted it literally as COVID started last year. So uh, it's probably smart. Yeah. I don't, yeah. they're like auto set up. I, I get like Fox News and Huffington Post, which is like great. The two, two get rid of it. Polar sources. And so, you know, I don't know, some, um, a couple people, like 10, a thousand, a million, like some degree of people like her. Um, but when I see her talk, um, she speaks exactly like, uh, you know, some sort of corporate VP or uh, McKinsey consultant who has nothing of substance to say. And her main job is to spin things or obviously yes. the real intention of initiatives. Um, so that's exactly what I see with her. Um, and, and, and more broadly, like, you know, uh, whichever political party is in power tends to be the one that's extremely full of shit. And, you know, right now that happens to be the Democratic Party. Yeah, I've seen some, um, I, I actually didn't know her name, um, not being American. So, um, but I, I've seen a lot of different clips of hers recently. Um, and there's a lot of um, avoiding 
answering questions. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's just really the Biden administration in general. Um, mm -hmm. The whole um, the whole uh, I can't remember what bill they're doing, but they were sort of saying that it's going to cost zero, right? No, I didn't yeah, that. Like, yeah. Like, oh, okay, sure. But this is what happens when you have true believers and. Um, you know, the, the deeper I get into understanding the world around me, it forces me to understand human psychology. And, you know, as I mentioned, I always argue with my dad about politics. Uh, yeah. Fortunately, like it's, we talk on a regular basis and we constantly disagree on politics. And, you know, one thing that um, I think about the way he thinks, and I think about some of the deficits in his own um, cognition is uh, he's very good at analytical thinking, except mm -hmm. he has some blind spots yeah. that rely on assumptions that aren't true. Uh, like a few amount of false assumptions make, may, uh, mean that the conclusions that he arrives at are completely far off. Um, and so, you know, what that means around like his support of government, well, he's a little bit of an anxious person himself. He's also not religious. 200 years ago, a person like that would have been kind of steered towards some religious community and said, well, your anxiety is, you know, due to your lack of relationship with God. And so the way you fix that is, you know, you do this and that and the other thing. And, um, you know, because he's a, 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 a graduate school educated individual uh, who's a lawyer in the 21st century, uh, you know, he thinks he's a little bit beyond that. And so he's opted for the, the church of rationality um, which has led him to the Church of the Democratic Party, um, whom he now sees in some regard as the, you know, that party takes the, the, his brains, it fills his brains void um, that needs a savior, right? And so when people, people's brains have a void for a savior, and that savior in some people's brains is uh, their concept of a deity, and that savior in other people's brains is the government, and so a lot of people just believe that the government is going to take care of them the same way other people whom the government believers think are ignorant believe some man in the sky is going to take care of their needs. Um, the issue, I think, is when one of those beliefs leads to the implementation of authoritarian policies, um, you know, because a, a small percentage of the population is too neurotic to deal with the realities of life and that it is dangerous and we cannot plan around everything and safeguard against everything possible. I think you touched on a really interesting point, which is something I keep hearing recently. It's how people have these conversations with their parents. They have good relationships with their parents. Their parents, um, they hold to high regards. You know, you know, they say they're very intelligent. They're, they're a doctor or, you know, they've always sort of seen the world in, in the correct way. But when it comes to recent events, our parents just aren't quite on board, aren't quite seeing it the way that we see it. They have these blind spots, as you say. And I'm not 100% sure why that is, but I do have a theory in that we're just of a different generation. So we, our generation now has access to technology. So we, mm -hmm. which means we have access to more ideas. So for example, Jordan Peterson, right? He has completely changed my entire um, perception on everything, mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. um, like feminism is a, is a fantastic example. I'm not going to get into it, um, but he's completely changed my perspective on it. And um that is something which I don't believe, you know, my parents would have had access to, um, you know, growing up in the 70s. I don't know when they grew up, something like that. Um, so it, it it is really interesting. Um, yeah. Is this something that you've come across? You, you see more, 100%. you know, parents and, are there, but not fully there. <laughs> 100%. And to build on that and, you know, offer my own perspective as to why that's the case. I think, you know, as we get older, 
our bodies and our minds become more immobile because we become lazy enough to only be able to do the things that we demand of it on a daily basis. And so one thing that your brain does in your 20s and your 30s, probably your 40s, is it starts to recognize um, trustworthy sources versus untrustworthy sources. And in our parents' generation, the pattern recognition that they that they relied upon in their 20s, 30s, and 40s was, oh, the New York Times is trustworthy. Oh, the C- CNN delivers good news. And it's the National Enquirer that delivers the fake stuff. But the real stuff um, comes from these publications that are under this brand name that are written in this font And so that's the shortcut I can use to know whether it's credible, what's the source. And so um, that neglects the fact that the same institutions that carry the same name, that write in the same font, um, that, uh, you know, have the reputations that they probably earned and deserved at one point in their uh, in their organizational lifespan, um, now they can just make things up because the employees within those organizations are very different than the employees within those same organizations 30 or 40 years ago. Those people are not trustworthy now. Um, and, and so, um, older people who haven't like, they're not con they're, you know, they, they basically finished their pattern recognition that is, uh, is coloring how and why they think they are not able to adapt to the fact that these institutions may once have been trustworthy, but now is not that time. Yeah. And so they, they do not see the value of um, finding alternative information sources, um, you know, and then, and so if you only trust the mainstream narrative, you know, you're effectively in a cult and you don't realize it um, because that cult is telling you all the ideas of the outsiders are wrong and dangerous and scary and they're going to lead to white nationalism and all these things. And it's like, dude, have you gone outside? Does what you're seeing on TV align at all with what you see in the real world? Um, or you like data here. These are government statistics that are not even being referenced in the articles that you're talking about. Um, if that was a genuine concern of the author and the, and the most reliable statistics directly refute the point that the author's, the author's making, um, stats can be wrong, but it's incumbent upon the author to at least reference the fact that the stats do contradict him or her and, and offer a reason for why those statistics are wrong. But they don't. They just pretend that those stats don't exist, which is how you know that they're not being genuine in their intent. Yeah, I think that right now we are going through a really interesting shift. And um, just to bring this conversation back to crypto, I do think that we it, it's sort of that safe haven for these ideas and this free thinking, this alternative way of seeing the world. And so I do, I do hope you know, I, I think somebody's written in the comments, they're talking about like ci- a civil war coming and people often talk about like Florida and Texas breaking away from America and all this stuff. But I do think that something is coming. And in some ways, I don't necessarily mind because I think that we need this crazy um, reality check, you know, whether it's like forced vaccines, whether it's COVID restrictions for the fourth year or the third year, whatever it is now. Um, I do think that we we do need something to to really wake people up i don't know we'll, we'll have to see what happens but well I, I wrote an article a year ago before trump got kicked off of twitter uh that said <laughs> I, and before bitcoin i think even crossed 20k definitely not okay. 30k and i wrote you know bitcoin the currency of the canceled so you guys can probably google that yes. title and it would come up under my medium page and uh and so i kind of thought like as more people get canceled 
um, and, and get kicked off of mainstream financial platforms, exactly. um, they're going to end up using Bitcoin. And so what I actually see happening with the political disagreements that are occurring in the U.S. is there's a recurring need for the people on the left to inflate, and that includes the FBI, um, to inflate the threat of white supremacy. And, and there's mm -hmm. a few key in like toxic masculinity. There's a few key issues yeah. where you're like, what these guys like it doesn't matter what's going on they just really really want to make sure that you're scared of this thing whether it's russia white supremacy or masculinity, whatever one. yeah and so it's like okay clearly they have an agenda to make sure that you're scared of this thing um yeah. clearly there's some sort of uh agenda to force medical decisions on other people and they're trying to make the two things intersect in people's minds like any good propagandist would and so, you know, what do I think the next, uh, you know, the next domino to fall could be? Uh, you also know the left is trying to ban guns. Um, and yep. if you'll notice in the, in the U.S. relative to other countries that have banned guns, the U.S. doesn't have lockdowns that are quite as severe as many of the countries that have banned guns. Although there's not guns in Scandinavia, and, and, but that's a little bit of a different thing that's going on there. And, um, and so what I see happening is, you know, for simple dissent, you know, when you say, well, toxic masculinity is a problem, toxic masculinity is actually a space holder for dissent. And so uh, instead of saying, well, we don't want to, we, dissent is dangerous. They can't say that just yet. Um, so they say, well, who are going to be the most likely loudest dissenters? Men. Okay, so let's just stigmatize toxic masculinity. Um, so we don't have to directly stigmatize dissent. We can just uh, stigmatize the people who are most likely to dissent. Yes. And so what's, what's going to end up happening, because it's a large country, is if they end up taking more aggressive uh, measures to force medical decisions on other people uh, or limit their ability to uh, make an income if they don't submit to medical decisions being made for them, uh, you know, one person of a hundred million is going to do something stupid because that's what happens when you have freedom and a hundred million people is someone's going to do something dumb. And so, you know, if that person ends up, uh, you know, shooting up some people, uh, which would be unfortunate, obviously, um, but not unlikely in a country that has 340 million people, like one person's going to go crazy every day. You can guarantee yes. yourself that. Um, they're going to use that as a excuse to like shut down uh, dissent of the left. And so imagine what would happen if one day, you know, uh, there was some sort of, uh, uh, you know, I mean, look at how they're responding to January 6th. They're massively inflating uh, a non-insurrection for being an insurrection. So obviously, if there's any sort of uh, domestic pushback, that includes anything violent. They're going to blow that so far out of proportions, uh, they is in the government. And then what's going to happen is because the government's blown it out of proportions, the institutionalists who populate these big tech companies are then going to say, oh, yeah, well, the government made this de declaration. Therefore, we need to do the responsible thing and not just kick off the, the people who are directly involved from the platforms, but, but kick off anybody who's like within two degrees of them from the platforms mm. because we need to kill this cancer before it spreads. OK, so what would that mean for somebody like you or somebody like me? You know, even though, you know, we will denounce violence and not be anywhere close to participating in something like that, uh, because we may have like commented on the same tweet as this, as the person uh, we get put on some list. Uh, we get kicked off these platforms. We get our PayPal accounts banned. 
And then, and then, you know, possibly, you know, there's some financial account restriction too that could happen. And none of these things seem plausible now, but you realize that once yeah. one thing happens, the Overton window shifts and new things become conceivable that were previously inconceivable. And that is how I think Bitcoin could end up becoming an alternative currency for the canceled. Yeah, I mean, that always reminds me um, of Piers Morgan because he did an interview with Ben Shapiro and Ben Shapiro was explaining the need for guns. And Ben Shapiro was basically saying, um, if you don't believe that your government could become tyrannical and therefore you need a gun to protect you and your family, then you're naive. And, you know, you can sort of look at that and say um, at the time, oh, he's just being a conspiracy theorist. He's being, you know, overly concerned. But when you look at the state of the world and what's happened over the last 18 months, nearly two years, um, anything is possible now. So yeah, um, sure. I, I wouldn't, yeah, so I, I wouldn't rule anything out. Um, but Alex, what? tell me what you're working on right now and where can people um, find you? And, you know, you said you, you've written some articles. So how can people follow all of this work? Yeah, I think the easiest way is to follow me on Twitter. My handle's Alex Feinberg one. Um, you know, what I've worked on last year is delicious recipes that a lot of people eat without really, you know, taking care of portion sizes. And they find their bodies are feeling better, their workouts are better, and their bodies are looking better. Um, I also have an eating framework that shows how I, you know, come to have four or 5% body fat at 35 years old without ever counting calories, along with the training plan that enables it. That's a lot easier than what most people do. So all of those are, I talk about those on my Twitter handle all the time. And then more recently, uh, as I mentioned, I've done more um, corporate navigation work. So, um, uh, you know, in the process of me working in, in the crypto exchange that I worked for from 2018 to 21, uh, 2021, also grew this nice Twitter handle. Um, and now a lot more people who are following me uh, realize that a lot of the shortcuts that I'm seeing in fitness and eating, um, you know, the same brain that created those or discovered those also has found a lot of corporate shortcuts too. Uh, so I've released uh, the guide to uh, the cheat codes to surviving corporate America. Um, also today, I released uh, the aristocrats guide to salary negotiation that a lot of people um, get wrong for uh, for very understandable but easily addressable reasons. And so um, just put that out. I'll uh, continue to push it. We've had several people purchase it already today. Um, and I think that's going to help a lot of people out because, uh, you know, I've recently started working with other people one-on-one, um, -on -one, some on salary negotiation, and we've gotten them like, you know, 30K raises in like two months. So, um, you know, that's how you can engage with me. I keep my DMs open. I will continue to keep them open until probably until it gets not, too crazy. Yeah, but I'll probably at least until 100,000 followers will keep them open. Ah, no, I keep them open. I've got over that and I keep them open. It's totally okay. fine. Well, I'll reassess um, it at that point. But yeah, it's good fun. Then. It's yeah. all fun and games. Um, but Alex, I want to thank you so much. It's been so interesting hearing your perspective. Guys, follow Alex. He has some really delicious recipes. Um, I'm always looking at them. I'm just like, wow. And of course, some really unique perspectives on Well, come over to right Austin. Now. Austin, you can actually like eat some. I know. I, I, I might do since I'm in Miami. I might do. Yeah, I do want to go to Texas next. Yeah, come. I might come. do it. All you, right. You got to invite to Chef Alex's kitchen when you come. All right. It's officially considered. All right, guys. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for watching. And Alex, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Leah. This is great. All right. See you next week. Bye.